All right, let's open up our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 13. I was uh, ex excited to get to this chapter. Why? Because it's the end of Hebrews 13. It's the end of Hebrews, and, and we get to move on to the book of Acts, which is very exciting. Here's, here's the groundwork that I've been trying to lay, so whether you're sitting here or listening by radio, we went through the book of Romans, which taught us the gospel of Jesus, the, the real unadulterated gospel. Then we've come through Hebrews, which has exalted Jesus in his superiority above all things and everything that he's done on our behalf and how that benefits us. And now we're coming into that. So read ahead, gang, because as we get in to, or into the book of Acts, now we've got the car. Now we're going to show you how to put the engine in it because that's found in the book of Acts. It is the uh, quintessentially the blueprint for the church. It is how the church is to operate. So I'm very excited looking ahead uh, to get into the book of Acts. But there's some great stuff here in this closing chapter uh, that Paul writes to us, I believe it is. And, you know, he, it basically, he spent all this time, you know, talking about the superiority of Jesus. And he's laid this out. And keep it in mind, just as a, to, to remind you, you know, he was talking to Christians who had been discouraged. Christians who had thought about maybe going back to Judaism, back to the weak and beggarly things of taste not, touch not, let's go up and sacrifice. Maybe it wasn't good enough what Jesus did. And he's cleared all that up. And so he comes here and he makes this simple statement. Look at verse 1. Let brotherly love continue. Be not forgetful to entertain strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember them that are in bonds as bound with them and with them which suffer adversity as being yourselves also in the body. In the New Testament, there's basically four words that are translated love. First one is eros, uh, which is where we get the word erotica from. It's a, it's a sexual type love. That's what the Bible uh, uses when it uses the word eros. It's what it's talking about. But then there's another word, it's storage. And the word storage in the Greek is, is a type of word that designates uh, family love. Love between a father and a son or a mother and a daughter or, you know, just within the family in general. And then there's the greatest love of all, which is agape. And this is one that we all know. And everybody knows the word agape. Because it's an unconditional love. It's that type of love that gives just because it loves. There's no condition, there's no reason for it other than it simply wants to do that. And, and this is the type of love that is always used to describe God's love for us. And I'm so thankful for that. And uh, that God loves us unconditionally. And, and, and it not only is it unconditional, but agape love is that type of love that not only gives, but it expects nothing in return. That's a foreign concept to us most of the time in the day and age that we live in. Most people do stuff because they expect something in return. Not agape. Agape love is totally one way. It's, it's not so much about feeling, it's about decision. There was this, an old song written uh, a long time ago called Love is, love is a Verb. I, I kind of liked it because it's, it's true. Love is a verb. It's an action word. But especially when it comes to agape. Because when God loves us, the fullness of God's love, when I really get my fingers around, all that Jesus Christ has done for me 
even though I don't deserve it, have never deserved it, have often rejected it, yet he still gives it. That's the type of love that, that agape is. It can love even when it's rejected. It doesn't even have to be accepted. It still loves. That kind of love is hard to understand because I'm not sure that on this side of heaven, we actually can, can as humans, can do that. I mean, I know that through Christ, all things are possible, but that's a tough type of love when you think about it. But it's the one I cherish the most, and it's the one that the Bible, of course, exalts the most. But the word that the author uses right here, let brotherly love continue, is the word Philadelphia. And it's a brotherly love. It's descriptive of a deep friendship or a partnership. So thus the writer of Hebrews encourages us to let this type of love continue, which means that he assumed that it was already going on. You know, loving each other is important. That's why you hear me harp on koinonia all the time. You know, fellowship, 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 koinonia, that's great. It's our opportunity to show each other that we care. I like sitting in a pew with you. I like worshiping God with you. I like you. That's brotherly love. I genuinely care. We have something in common. We have the blood of Christ in common. We have all put our faith in Jesus. I love being around you. I, wouldn't, I want you in my house. I, I want you around me. I want my kids around you. I, want, I, I love you. That's brotherly love. We're on the same side. We have something very much in common. We have a, a common purpose in spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let brotherly love continue. Now, besides the fact that he talks about entertaining angels, I just want to throw this one in for free. Because this is one of those really cool little things where he just kind of, Paul throws it out there. There's several of them in this chapter, but he says, you know, entertain strangers. For many have entertained angels unaware. Now, there's all been all kinds of crazy songs written about angels in books, you know, and elevating angels to some status that they don't deserve, nor would they accept. Uh, but that's not what he's talking about. Angel, the word angel here simply means messenger, but it's a messenger from God. Now, I don't know for a fact that I have ever entertained an angel. You know, I don't know, because he says many have done it, but you were unaware of it. But I have a story which I, it, it's amazing to me. Maybe you have one, and we'll talk about it later on. But let me give you the one I, I remember the, the most, that I'm convinced had to be an angel. I was working at my first radio uh, job. This, was, this would have been back in 1982. Uh, yes, yeah, some of you probably were babies at the time, if you were born at all. And so back in 82, I was a, I was a very, 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 very young man in A2. Okay, no, we laughed. So I was a really young man, but I was working in my first radio show, and I had this car that the Lord had actually given to me. That's a whole other story. I won't go into that part of it. But God had given me this car. Well, it was, it was a, a, a Ford, uh, I forget now. But anyway, it was a cool car. It had slicks on the back, though. You know, the wide, like, racing tires. And I thought the car was really cool. Well, those are great, and it looked really good. But it started to snow one night. And I don't know whether you ever had a racing tire on a car in the snow. It, it, there's something called traction. 
that, you know, tires really love. And if they don't have it, you don't really move. You just kind of... So if you, if you understand where CVZ, WCVZ was in, in Zanesville, it was way up this one hill and then way out on the uh, South Pike is where we called it. And uh, so I'm headed to work. And it's like I had the late shift. And so it's nighttime, which it was really cold. And the snow is like blizzard conditions. And I'm, I'm thinking, I'm, I'm going and I'm trying to time the lights so I don't have to stop. Why? Because I had slicks on and there was no traction. And I knew. And I thought, dear Lord, when I get up to this one, i got to go up this hill. And I'm thinking, Lord, you know, please just let me, just let the light be green. Because I'm, I'm hopefully enough cars that went through, it'll be enough traction I can get up. So I'm driving and I, and I, I get, and sure enough, not only was the light red, but there was like, a line of cars in front of me and a line of cars behind me. Now, I didn't mind if I had been the last car. Do you understand what I'm saying? I, I wouldn't have minded that at all. But I knew that, oh, no, now I know what's going to happen. Because this car had a, had a big old Windsor. I think it was called a 450 or so. It was a huge. And it was like a four-speed. And I knew as soon as I let off that clutch what was going to happen. I was going to hear you know, just spinning. I knew I wasn't going to move. And I thought, Lord, these guys behind me are going, they're going to be really get ticked off. And I knew that I had to get to work. And uh, sure enough, the light turns green and all the cars kind of ease up. And I'm thinking, Lord, please, 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 please. And, 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 and sure enough, zzz, and I was like, oh, no. And, and I'm looking out and I got the windows and I could barely see out my side window. And there's cars behind, in line behind, and I'm going, oh, no, I'm, I'm really making people mad. And now, you know, I probably won't make it to work because somebody's going to beat me up, and it's just going to be bad. And the next thing I know, I hear this tap, and I look, and the guy scared me to death, and, and he's going like this. And I rolled my window down. He goes, do you want me to push you up the hill? And I said, and I said can you? And I look back. Now, now all of a sudden... And, and, and I know this sounds crazy, but all of a sudden, here was a big, beautiful four-by-four truck that had like this big rack on the front with rubber on it. Now, I haven't seen one since. I mean, I'm sure they still make them, but it was like the perfect size. And I said, please, would you do? He goes, yeah, no problem, right? So I roll my window. Now, when you go up this hill... And all of a sudden, he's very gently, and I'm, I'm going, and I'm, I'm like, yeah, praise the Lord. You know, I'm, I'm hallelujah, and all the way up the hill, I get up to the top of the hill, and all of a sudden, I realize, you know, next thing I know, I look around, and that truck is not there. There's still a line of cars behind me, but now I've got traction, and there is no roads on the left or right on that one section of highway up there, so he didn't turn off. You understand what I'm saying? Now... Was that an angel of the Lord? It was to me. And I have no explanation for that. So, uh, and, and I didn't get to entertain him, which I would have. I would have taken him out to dinner. Uh, but, you know, they're all ministering spirits, the Bible says, sent to minister to us. And so, be hospitable to strangers, he says. For many have entertained angels unawares. Now, besides that, Paul is encouraging us to be hospitable, as I use that word. Because hospitality is important. You don't hear it preached on much. But hospitality is extremely important virtue in Christendom. It's so important that it is commanded of Christians and Christian leaders. 
If you remember back in Romans chapter 12, verse 13, Paul told us to be willing to distribute to the saints and, and to be given to hospitality. But the one I like, and the one that always stood out to me as a pastor, is in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 3, verse 2, where Paul says that a pastor must be given to hospitality. You know, it's one of those, it's not a prerequisite, it's just a listing of all the things that will be evident in the life of a man who is called to be a bishop or a pastor. He must be given to hospitality. You know, the word hospitality simply means love of the brethren. To love, you know, to bring in, to, to entertain, you know. Now, also in 1 Peter, you know, Peter said, show hospitality one to another without grudging. You know, sometimes people will do hospitality. They'll invite you over for dinner because they think they have to. That happens to pastors all the time, and you never usually get a very good dinner when that happens. And, uh, no, I'm serious. I mean, people actually do that stuff because they think they have to. You know, they would come to you and go, you know, I think it's my turn to invite you guys over for dinner. It's like, oh, I'll pass, bro. Uh, I'm a pretty good cook myself. You know, if you don't want to do it, you know, you don't do it grudgingly. Remember, it's always a get-to, not a have-to. Uh, sometimes it's nice to have people, but there's always those times when people really want to do that. But, but showing that type of hospitality. The writer of Hebrews directing us to be hospitable to Christians, but he also says be hospitable to Christian strangers. You know, one of the things that I would encourage us to do is to not just invite your friends over who are Christians. Because when you do that, I mean, even though it's a good thing, I mean, it's nothing wrong with inviting your friends over for lunch or dinner, don't, don't get me wrong. But that's not really a fulfillment of, of what he's talking about here. A, a true fulfillment of that is when we see some stranger, a person who has attended a church maybe once or twice and still doesn't really know anybody, to put your arm around that person and say, hey, I'd like to invite you over for dinner. Don't take them out to dinner. See, that's too easy. That, that's, that's, a, that's agape at a distance. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, no, it really is. Think about it. When somebody, now, it's, it's great if you want to offer somebody a meal. I, I, it's fine. I've had many people, and some people in this church, when I've went out to dinner, me and my wife, I've had some of you guys actually get up and pay my check for me. Thank you. I, I appreciate that. I mean, I didn't expect it, and it was a blessing, and that's all good. But when we have strangers, people who come in here for the first time, this is a very gracious church. It was one of the things that drew me here. And, and we still are, but I say, walk in the spirit and, and just put your arm around a stranger and say, hey, uh, me and my wife would like to invite you over for dinner. Now, having said that, I've invited some of you over for dinner to no avail. Now, when somebody offers you something, and I'm a pretty good cook, just saying, you know, take them up on it. Like, you know, receive grace gracefully. But you know what? Be enter you know, entertain strangers, you know, Christian strangers. Welcome them. You know, have them come to your house. You know, when I was pastoring and I was the lead pastor at Calvary Chapel, I loved having people over. I loved it. We didn't have the, uh, what do they call that, the parsonage day, you know, when people would all come to the parsonage. You know, I was like, I didn't do that. I said, my door's open. Give me a call, man. You're on your way to work or whatever. You got, I, the coffee's on. You know, come on over. My wife knows I'm telling the truth. It's like, you know, come over. I don't care. I, I want to talk to you. I like that stuff. You're not interrupting me. If you are, I'll tell you. You know what? I got something better to do, bro. <laughs> Call me again. I am, I'm honest. 
You know, but most of the time, it's, it's just, you know what, I love doing that stuff. We need to do that. Be a fellowship junkie, you know, but put your arm around a stranger. Entertain strangers, you know, because in so doing, sometimes you might be entertaining a, an angel unaware. That person that you're, you know, even if it's not a supernatural angel, that person that you befriend might turn out to be the blessing that you need that day, you know? You never know what story of his glory that person might have in their life. That'll minister to you if you just get to know them and bring them into your house. You know, come on over, you know? The old country songs that, that I could sit here and recite, y'all come. We don't have that mentality anymore. We have a standoff mentality. Like, well, I don't mind sitting with you in a pew, bro, but uh, sitting across from my litter table with you, well, I'm drawing a line on that. No, no, man. Be a, be a fellowship junkie. You, you won't regret it. But, you know, Paul goes on and tells them to remember, you know, to those who are prisoners. Many brothers and sisters in the Lord, and I've known several, and who have had prison ministries. And, and I like prison ministries. I actually worked in a prison many, many years ago when I was a younger man. And, uh, it was the first time I was uh, ever introduced to a man by the name of Chaplain Ray. Uh, whether any of you guys remember him, he was on radio for many, many years. Uh, Chaplain Ray was a guy who went to prisons, and he, he wrote, wrote many books. I would encourage you to, to look at some of them. And he, he would lead these guys to the Lord, and he led a lot of very famous criminals to Christ. Now, I, you have to be called to that type of ministry. Now, you know, he says, pray for these guys. Remember them. So we should all pray for prisoners, especially those who are being incarcerated because of their faith. And there's many, many brothers and sisters to this day. I mean, right as we sat in the Middle East, there's Christians not only being imprisoned for their faith, but they're dying for their faith. We don't know that kind of persecution, but we should pray for them. Uh, but there's a special ministry to those who are in prison, not just for the sake of the gospel, but really for any reason. It's a great opportunity to preach the gospel. Now look at verse 4. He says, marriage is honorable in all, and the bed undefiled, but whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. It's very clear from the many biblical texts that the Bible strictly condemns sex outside of the marriage commitment. Thus, this verse, fornicators and adulterers God will judge. But the Bible also celebrates the sexual love, that Eros-type love between a husband and a wife. And the bed is undefiled. Matter of fact, it always amazed me that, that one of the greatest books in the Bible dealing with the issue of marriage is found in the book of the Song of Solomon. I love it. And it's interesting. Uh, I remember years ago in my studies of the LDS church, uh, Joseph Smith had put together a uh, his uh, version, if you will, of the scriptures. And the only book in it that he left out was the Song of Solomon, which I always thought was interesting to me. And why is that? Because think about it. Even though that book, the Song of Solomon, many people won't even read it. And it was like banned in some churches because, you know, it's, it's too explicit. I'm going, it's the word of God, you know. But what does it represent? What well, represents the love of God and the church, that beautiful relationship, just as you find in Ephesians 5, 
Husbands, love your wives as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. Paul even goes down through there in Ephesians. He says, I know this is a great mystery, but I'm speaking of concerning Christ and the church. The Song of Solomon is about Christ and the church. One of the coolest things that ever happened to me on this very issue, when I, when I was uh, CEO of, of Elcor Laboratories, I would teach a Bible study with all the employees up there every morning. And, and uh, you know, you, didn't, you had to go but I paid them to go. I mean, you didn't, you didn't have to participate, but you had to listen for an hour. On the clock, I was paying you. You could drink coffee, do what you want, but you had to be up there for an hour. And one morning I was teaching, I don't even remember what it was, I was teaching through Isaiah or someplace like that. And I had this young man, a uh, big burly guy, big burly, he was a f- fairly new uh, employee, but I was training him, and I, I was the one that got stuck, I want to put it that way, I got stuck having to go show him the truck route. And because uh, I was the only one who didn't really have anything to do that day. So <laughs> I was like, sure, I'll do it. So we get in this truck, and this guy's sitting to my right. You know, and he was an employee. I didn't, I mean, I knew him, but I didn't, I didn't know him yet. And so we're driving down the road, you know, and, and he looks over at me and goes, I, I, I hear you play guitar. He's got this big, booming voice. I hear you play guitar. And I said, yeah, well, I pick a little bit, you know, and I'm driving. He's going, I hear, I hear you write songs. And I said, well, yeah, you know, I play around with it a little bit, you know. <laughs> and he goes, I write. I said, oh, really? He goes, you want to hear one? And I said, well, sure. And I went like this to take the tape. because, I, And all of a sudden, this big burly guy starts belting out this song, a cappella, I mean, very loudly. And all of a sudden, I have to admit, I was a little fearful. You know, it kind of scared me because he was big. And I'm going, uh-oh, I hired a crazy man. And this guy's like, uh-oh, you know, I mean, but all of a sudden he starts singing this song and it's so beautiful and it's right from the song of Solomon. And I looked at him and I said, you didn't write that. He goes, yeah, I did. I said, no, you, you did not write that. Yes, I did. And I said, when did you write that? He said, this morning. I said, this morning. You wrote that this morning. He goes, yeah. I said, when? He goes, during your Bible study. I said, I wasn't even teaching in the Song of Solomon. He goes, well, I couldn't find where you were at. <laughs> I mean, true story. And he says, so I just opened it up, and it opened up to that. That song actually made it, I think, to our first album. And so accurate was it, the picture that this young man saw. Oh, it broke my heart because it was such a powerful song. And there it was, the Song of Solomon and how Christ and the church, I'm going, oh, my lands. But see, that's what it is. The word of God, when somebody is open to that, how they can just pull in the Holy Spirit being so instructive and just leading us into that, you know. It was just a beautiful, beautiful thing. But the Song of Solomon is a great, great, picture of marriage and that beautiful sexual relationship between a husband and a wife. I remember years ago, I, I listened to a preacher. I saw him come in. He was doing, actually doing a thing on rock and roll. At that time, everybody thought it was, even Christian rock was anathema, you know. And so there was guys. But he did say one thing, and, I, and he was touching on this issue of promiscuity within the church. And I happened to be there that night. I was, I was a very young Christian, but I remember him. He, he was sitting up at the pulpit area. And they had brought in this, like, uh, tile area that he was standing on. And he had this beautiful flower pot. It had a big bouquet of flowers in it. And he stood up and he said, now, this is, this is beautiful. How many people would agree that this is beautiful? Of course, we all raised our hand, you know. 
And he says, you know, you notice that it's in this pot, it's in this beautiful pot, and it's, it's all, conf- it's beautiful. I mean, the, the, the bouquet was, absolutely- and then he just let go of it, and he dropped it. And it hit that, that, that tile, and it just, the dirt, everything, it just went everywhere. He says, now, it ain't so beautiful anymore, is it? When you remove it from its confines, it becomes something dirty. It becomes something that's not very beautiful. And that's why the Bible condemns that. The Bible says, don't do that. Don't defile yourself. Allow yourself to engage in that relationship that is only between a husband and a wife. Why? Because it's a great example of the church. And the church is never defiled. And thus, the marriage bed is not defiled. It's not. It's something that we embrace because it is something that God wants us to enjoy. It's the, the way that a couple come together and become one in the Lord and in so many ways. You know, he just, I heard it said one time, this was interesting, and I don't remember the preacher that said it, but I liked it. The enemy of our soul wants to do everything he can to encourage sex outside of the marriage bed that he might defile those who engage in it. And in turn, he wants to do everything he can do to discourage sex in the marriage bed where they might be cleansed from their defilement. Let's not forget that's the way the enemy works. He wants to do that. And I've had this told to me so many times, so many people's experience on that issue. But the marriage bed, Paul throws it out here. The marriage bed is undefiled. Marriage is honorable. Look at verse 5. Let your conversation, of course, from, from the received text, we understand the word conversation means your manner of life. Let your manner of life be without covetousness and be content with such things as you have. For he has said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. If you're taking notes, you need to underline that. I will never leave thee nor forsake thee so that we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what men shall do unto me. Covetousness is often described as greed. Unfortunately, in our day and time, in our culture, greed is often excused or even admired because we change the name of it. We call it ambition. You know, well, he's got a lot of ambition. But contentment, however, and I like it because the Bible teaches contentment. That's what we really need to have. Flip with me, if you will, uh, to Philippians chapter 4. I just want to read something to you. Because contentment is the exact opposite of covetousness. And Paul gives a great illustration of how this is lived out in Philippians chapter 4. Look at verse 11, and we're going to read through 15. He says, not that I speak in respect of want. This is the Apostle Paul writing. For I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. I know both how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to, be, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. If you're taking notes tonight, you need to mark that. I can do all things, why, how? Through Christ who strengthens me. Notwithstanding, you have well done that ye did communicate with my affliction. They had shared with Paul. They had helped him out. 
we're living in a time, you know, that there's so many people that preach the prosperity type thing. You know, God wants everybody rich. Remember coming home one time, there's, a, there's an old guy out there, kind of the grandfather of that doctrine uh, by the name of Kenneth Hagin. And he wrote a book years ago. And I was just a young preacher. Uh, you know, I was still on radio, uh, early 80s. And I remember coming home one time, and he had this real southern accent. And he said, uh, and he always would start off by saying, today I'm going to be teaching from my book. And, and, he, and he would teach from his book. And I always thought, well, why don't you try teaching from the book? You know what I'm saying? I just always wondered why he never do that. But he said, today I'm going to be teaching from my book called God Wants You Rich. And at first I thought he was joking. And then as the more I listened, I realized he wasn't joking. They really believe that. Even though the Bible says that there will come those in the last days teaching that gain is godliness. But he goes on. And he says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. Now listen, I'm not saying that God wants you poor. I think if you had money, use it for the glory of God. I always did that. I always tried to do that. I can attest and I can uh, connect with the Apostle Paul when he says, I have abounded and I have been abased. You know, but I've learned to be content in whatever state I am. There's been times in my life when I had access to large sums of money, free-flowing. Because why? Because God's good. The Lord is good. But there's been times when I've been put to the test. And there's been times. But you know what? I, I can honestly say it didn't matter to me one way or the other. I was just as happy in Christ having a lot as I did in having a little. And I've actually been through that process a couple times in my life. So you know what? Contentment is what we should be seeking for. Not just stuff. Because stuff perishes. You know, somebody said one time that he who dies with the most toys wins. I got news for you. <laughs> it's not true. So often we just accumulate stuff and, I don't know, me and my wife went through a downsizing here a few years ago and found out that you can do with a whole lot less than what you think you have. You know, you can. And most of the time it's just junk. Look at verse 15. Oh, you know what? I jumped one on you. Let's look at verse 7. I was still going through Philippians. Sorry about that. Verse 7. Remember them which have the, the rule over you, who have spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith follow, considering the end of their conversation. Now, I always love this verse. And Paul's going to retouch on this before he closes out. We are exhorted here to recognize and to follow godly leadership within the body of Christ. But I would point out to you that this is a conditional commandment when you look at it. It's predicated upon the leader's fulfillment or his faithfulness to teach the word of God. This is what Paul says. So he gives this condition. He says, who have spoken unto you the word of God? Therefore, it's my firm contention and, and, and my belief that only those leaders within Christendom who deliver the unadulterated full counsel of God through his word are deserving of such loyalty and emulation. We're not called to just follow lamely anybody who calls himself a pastor or who somebody else calls a pastor. Paul says, look, remember them which had the rule over you who have spoken unto you the word of God. But look what he says, considering the end of their conversation. 
considering the manner of their life. Are these men actually teaching the word of God? Are they giving you the full counsel of God? Does their life show it? Do they show it? So often, it's not the case. And we need to not just blindly follow, we need to compare those guys with the word of God. So it's those who have delivered the unadulterated word of God. These are the ones who are worthy of emulation. Matter of fact, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16, Paul says, Take heed unto thyself, talking to young Timothy, and unto the doctrine, continue in them. Continue in them. For in doing this, thou shalt save thyself and them that hear thee. I love that. He tells Timothy, continue in the doctrine. So often today within Christendom, gang, doctrine means nothing. That's why when we started our study, I told you, theology is important. The word theology simply means the study of God. But what most people practice is not theology. What they practice is what I call theologyology, which means that they study God who somebody, or they study somebody who studied God. Do you understand what I'm saying? And the problem is, were they wrong? Instead of just taking the scriptures and going through them expositionally, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and, and letting the scriptures, you know, exegetically speak for itself, so often we can be influenced by people who have a skewed view themselves. Test the spirits of what sort they are. You know, we need to put this stuff to the test of the word of God. So he tells Timothy, take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. Doctrine is important. When we talk about the issue of the gospel, that's why we hammered it in the book of Romans. We need to. That's why we talk about the vicariousness of Jesus Christ, all that Jesus has done. That's doctrine, not just his death on the cross, but his life, because it's his life that made us righteous. It, we have our righteous impute, imputed to us, and at the same time, our sins are imputed to Christ. Those are doctrinal things that we need to understand. That's why we have so many weak Christians today. They don't understand the graciousness and, and the imputation that we have through Jesus Christ, that exchanged life, if you will. They don't get it because they don't continue in the doctrine. But people like Timothy, you know, these guys who do continue in doctrine, the, such leaders should be recognized and followed. It's been said that just as much as the church needs godly leaders, it also needs godly followers. It just does. Look at, look at verse 8. He says, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. He just throws this out. And I love the fact that he does this. It just, it just jumps out at you. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. So often, in, in my stint as a Christian, I don't want to say career, as a, that just sounds crazy. Uh, but as long as I've been a pastor and a Bible teacher, you know, for over 30-some years, I've actually had people who believe and, and wholeheartedly believe because of their ignorance of the scriptures that there's like the God of the Old Testament and there, there's the loving Jesus. You know, the God of the Old Testament was a God of wrath and of, you know, and then there's gentle Jesus, you know, the gentle shepherd. And, and they, they, they believe this. And I'm going, you do realize that the gentle Jesus was the one who called into existence everything that is found in the universe. For by him were all things created that were created. And without him was nothing created that was created. He is God. 
He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is immutable. He is the one. He is the only. He's the alpha, the omega. He is all in all. Jesus, the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that's why we can place our faith and our hope in him. Why? Because he doesn't change. Men change. Their attitudes change. Their doctrine, because of their lack of knowledge, might change. But Jesus doesn't change. Jesus never fails. I love that he just throws that out there. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's the God of the Old Testament. He's the God of the New Covenant. And he has extended his grace and his mercy and his restoration to all those who will simply say yes to that. Thank God for that tonight, gang. Paul throws this out as if it's out of nowhere. When we talk about the non-changeableness of God, I use the term immutability. That's what it's called in theology. It's immutable. God is immutable. There's an old saying. Write this down. Get this one in your heart. Make note of it. If it's new... It ain't true. If it's true, it ain't nothing new. So often in the body of Christ today, there's all kinds of new stuff that comes down the pike. Yeah, somebody's always got a new this and new that. Some new way of bringing Christians or getting whatever. No, Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. If I hear one more time somebody talk, well, we want to be culturally relevant. Oh, dear Jesus Really? You know, think about it. You know, before Paul the Apostle preached the gospel of grace, culture had been around for about three to 4,000 years. It wasn't like their first introduction to God. Paul himself was a great rabbi before he became a great Christian. But I never heard Paul ever say, you know, we got to really, uh, let's send out a group of people and let's look at what the culture is really like so that we can figure out some program that we might lure them in. No, what did Paul do? Paul went about preaching the gospel. I love what it says in the book of Corinthians, and we'll get to it. Some believed, some didn't. The same as it is today, gang. I don't care how, what kind of bait you use. You can lure them in, you can, you can give them hamburgers, but whatever you bring them in with, you will have to keep them with. Don't ever forget that. There's been churches, I remember here not too long ago, there was a church offering free gas tickets. Remember when the gas was really expensive? Yeah, they were offering free gas cards. And, of course, the place was packing out. <laughs> they were packing it out. Well, sure they were. They were giving away free gas, and gas was like 4 bucks a, ga a gallon. So they were giving $25 gift cards just to get you to come to church. Whatever you bring them in with, you have to keep them with. And if you don't keep getting bigger and better... What happens? Well, they go away. They go away. If all we bring them in with is great music, then the music has to continually get better. Why? Because there's this thing that we call the law of diminishing return. You understand what that is, right? The law of diminishing return simply says that it takes more and more and more to get the same feeling because that's what a lot of churches are based on anymore. Let's face it. I'm not picking on the body of Christ. It's just an observation game. We've given so much of ourselves over to just feeling. Well, we, it feels good. 
No, we don't walk by feelings. The Bible says that. We walk by what? Faith. So we want to be consistent. What do we want to bring them in? Now, one time I heard that they were actually offering for the people who would bring Sunday school kids, you know, they wanted to increase their Sunday school, so they started offering tickets to McDonald's. Well, of course, they had a big influx of kids till the tickets ran out. <laughs> this, whatever you bring them in with, you got to keep them with. That's why if you catch them with the Word of God and they come in to hear the Word of God, then you don't have to do anything else. Why? Because the Word of God never changes. It never changes. It only gets better as you go through it. I was not surprised, well, maybe a little, when I got the email Saturday telling us that our show was basically the number one show. And I had, I, I was telling this earlier to somebody, I said I had somebody trying to pat me on the back, and I know they were just trying to pay me a compliment. You know, it's like, well, you know, you are, and, you know, trying to, you know, and I'm going, no, it's not me. It's not me. It's because we're taking people systematically through the Word of God. And when you go systematically through the Word of God, who gets exalted? Me? No, Jesus. Jesus gets exalted. We talk about all that Jesus has done and how that affects you. Man, I don't know about you, but I, I probably get more out of it than you do. I love hearing about all that Jesus has done for me. I love hearing the fact that it's not predicated upon my works. I love hearing that. It, it energizes me. Do I preach with passion? Yeah, because I believe it. I'm thankful for it. But it has nothing to do with me. It's the Word of God. The Word will not return void. It's the power of the Word of God. It's just that simple. So if we bring them in with the Word of God, we don't have to worry about making a better program or giving them hamburgers or whatever. We don't have to do that. We just have to keep teaching the Word of God. The biggest encouragement, and I was sharing this earlier, what, what encourages me is now we have like 180-some people a day who are downloading the iPod or the uh, podcast and coming to our website here at Marm to listen to the Roman and Hebrew studies. They're actually just going with it with us. They're going through it with us. I actually put an invitation out. Uh, we'll be broadcasting that. It's for people to come on Sunday night. I've never done it before, but we're going to start broadcasting that. Because if you want to come and sit, because obviously we've had people show up and they want to, they want to worship with us and, and through the Word, and that's cool. But my, what, what my encouragement is, is there's been other pastors, and there's pastors now who are listening to the broadcast. Now, here's my hope, is that they will emulate. If, I, if there's anything to emulate, just emulate what we're doing. What are we doing? We're going through the Bible. We're taking the church through the Scriptures. And we're talking about the greatness and the centrality of Jesus Christ. That's what we're doing. Can you imagine if every church body in our town would simply systematically take the church through. Because what happens? People get changed. People get changed. The word of God changes you, man. It's powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It does what it says it will do. And so I'm excited about that. I just, it's not a me thing. It's a we thing. We're in this together. And I just, I just love the fact that God is using it and people are being blessed. Look at verse 9. Be not carried away about with diverse and strange doctrines. For it's good, it's a good thing that the heart be established with grace, not with meats, which have not profited them that have been occupied therein. We have an altar whereof they, are no, they have no right to eat which serve the tabernacle. 
For the bodies of those beasts whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. Wherefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the, the gate. Let us go forth, therefore, unto him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For there have we no continuing city, but we seek one to come. There's never been a shortage of various and strange doctrines in the body of Christ. The ones specifically that come to mind, and I, I mentioned it uh, earlier, you know, uh, about you know, the whole name it, claim it thing. I mean, there's so many of them. Though. I, I couldn't go into it. But really what he's talking about here is the returning, the, the people dealing with the returning to the mosaic laws, the mosaic ceremonies. This is really what he was talking about, these strange and various doctrines that these poor Christians had gotten caught up in. But he says that our hearts should be established with grace, you know, it's, it's when our heart is established with grace, we have this understanding that God approves of us even though we don't deserve it. And it kind of brings me to a verse that was, with, that was talked about today. And I, I take issue with the way that it was delivered, only because of the translation that was being used. You know, it's one of the first verses I ever committed to memory. Study to show thyself approved unto God as a workman who needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. In this particular version it was being used, the word study to show thyself approved wasn't even there. Here's what it said. <laughs> Work to show yourself approved unto God. Gang, there's a vast difference between performance-based Christianity and grace-based fit Christianity. It's not a mixture. You can't mix new wine and old wineskins. You can't do it. It's either all grace or it's all nothing. But, you know, the, that whole, here's what you need to do. Here's what we ought to be doing. Well, there's no doubt that Paul's going to talk here in a little bit about the issue of good works. But there's a way to do it, and there's a way not to do it. But our hearts need to be established with grace, because it's by grace that everything is done, that God does what he does. We don't need to keep a list of Hebrews because this is a, a, an assumed approval with God. So often people assume they have approval with God because they, they keep the list. They, they were keeping the ceremonial laws, the, the eat-nots, the touch-nots, the, those type of things that the Jews so readily embraced who willingly was wanting to go back to it. But that's not real approval. That's an assumed approval. Our approval comes by the grace of God because we don't deserve it. It's because Jesus earned it, and he has imputed those things to us by faith alone. That's the approval of God. And we need to study his word so that we're reminded of that, because our tendency is to fall back into that performance-based type Christianity. We all have that a propensity to do that. You know, we all want to get up and do something for Jesus, you know. That's not always wrong. But if our motivation isn't right, it absolutely can be. The author here talks about, we have an altar. And I love this part of it. He says, we have an altar that those who serve the temple have no right. They have no right to it. I would underline that, exclamate it. They have no right to it. These Jewish Christians had probably been branded as illegitimate by other Jews as many of those Jews today who put their faith in Christ are branded illegitimate. 
They don't even consider us Jews. How dare you even claim the blood? As much as I love Israel, shalom Arushalayim, as much as I love Israel, but even today, as much as I love Bibi, I love him. He's a great man of God. It's too bad he hasn't changed the rules because if you're Jewish and yet you claim the name of Christ, you have no inheritance in Israel. Whether you knew that or not. Every other Jew is allowed to go there and be a citizen, but not those of us who claim Jesus. Oh, no. <laughs> That's a whole other issue, you know. These Christians were branded as illegitimate. Why? Because they had placed their faith in Christ and they did not continue in the Levitical system. They just didn't do it. So they considered them outcast. So they were not taking their sacrifices to the temple to be offered so Paul insists here that we have an altar, and it is an altar whose who these people have no right. Those who do go to the altar, those who do go to the temple, they had no right to it. Our altar is the cross of Jesus Christ as Christians. That's our altar. It is the very centerpiece of the Christian gospel and our understanding of that. In 1 Corinthians, you don't have to turn there, you can just... Write it down. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, he says, For the preaching of the cross to them that perish is foolishness, but unto us it is the power of God unto salvation. Because Jesus suffered outside the gate, he said, Let us go forth unto him outside the camp. Bearing his reproach, if Jesus was rejected and his sacrifice, which he performed on the cross, which is our altar, was branded illegitimate by the Jews, what better do we expect? Identifying with Jesus often means bearing his reproach, the very thing that, unfortunately, some people are not willing to do. When the writer refers to outside the camp, he's referring to the, institutional, uh, or the institution of Judaism, going outside of that which had rejected Christ. It's important to remember that the Jewish Christians had been raised to consider everything that was outside the camp was considered unclean and evil. They believed it. Anything outside that camp was considered unclean. And yet we're told that this is the very place that we must follow Jesus because Jesus came to save an unclean and an evil generation. There's no doubt that it's not always easy to bear his reproach. But it's easier when we remember that we have no city here. We have no continuing city. This is not our residence. We are aliens in this world, gang. We are passing through. We seek for a city whose builder and maker is God. We seek for a, a permanency that is coming. And it's coming quicker than we think. But it is coming. But this isn't it. Look at verse 15. By him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name, but to do good and to communicate, forget not. For with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. Because we have an altar, the cross, and a superior high priest, Jesus Christ, we should always offer sacrifices. 
but not the bloody sacrifices of the old covenant, but the sacrifice of praise, which is the fruit of our lips. In this particular passage, the writer of Hebrews spells out several essentials for proper praise. Let me give them to you one at a time. Number one, a praise that's pleasing to God is offered, you'll see, by him. Let us offer sacrifices, he says, by him. That is, by Jesus Christ on the grounds of his righteousness and his being pleasing to God. Number two, praise that pleases God is offered continually. Continually. Number three, praise that pleases God is a sacrifice of praise. A sacrifice means just that, my friends. It means sacrifice. Sometimes it's costly to give the praise to God. Sometimes it's inconvenient to give the praise to God. But it's always what pleases God. Number four, the praise that pleases God is the fruit of our lips which means that it's much more than just thoughts that we think about God. Those are good, but that's not a sacrifice of praise. It's the fruit of our lips. It's when we talk about the Lord. It's when we talk about how good the Lord is. So often I've had people who would come to my business or come to the church, and they would look at all the things that the Lord has done, and they would try to pat me on the back as though I, by my own power, had brought about these particular things. I've always been keen to tell people, oh, no, 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 this is the Lord. Everything that has happened to us happened because of what God has done. He was the one doing it. It's that sacrifice of praise, and the more you do it, the easier it becomes to just simply give God the glory because he is so worthy. He's the one who deserves it. What proceeds from the lips is regarded as fruit, which reveals the character of the source of the fruit of the tree that it came from. Then he goes on to say, don't forget to do good and to share or to communicate. He says, same thing. For with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. Praise is not the only sacrifice that pleases God. We're also sacrificing to God when we do good. When we do good, when we share. Praise and worship are important. Absolutely they are. But being motivated by our love of Jesus to do good works is just as important and pleasing to God. This is why we're told in Ephesians 2.10 that we are created in Christ Jesus unto good works. Not to be approved, but to simply to please him who has done all for us. Well, let's just go on, and we'll touch on this a little bit later. Look at verse 17. He says, Obey them that have the rule over you, and submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls, as they that must give an account that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. Once again, not too far down in this chapter, the writer throws out this another reference to, to pastors and leaders. Hmm. The exhortation that the writer gives us here is to be submissive to the leaders that God has given us, assuming, assuming, as I said before, that they have the character mentioned in Hebrews 13.7. We are simply told to obey those who have rule over us. 
It's important to remember when speaking on the authority of God's word, leaders have the right and a mandate, I would say, to tell us how to live and to walk after God. They have that right. But I want to emphasize that we should only be following those who fall in the line of Hebrews 13.7 and who are giving us the full counsel of God. There was a shepherding movement. Maybe some of you remember it. it, was, it it's one of those weird doctrines that, that we just talked about a minute ago that came into the church and kind of had its heyday and the Kansas City prophets and those guys kind of brought it in and and, and some people took it to an extremely unhealthy level where they would go to the pastor and, you know, uh, pastor, I'm, I'm thinking about buying a car. Can you tell me whether I'm doing it right or not? And they would actually have to get permission. It was called the shepherding movement. And, and they really, to be honest with you, some Christians embraced it wholeheartedly. Really, why? Because they wanted somebody else to be responsible for their life. You know, just tell me what to do. Well, that's crazy. That's, that, that is a performance. Once again, some people, that, well, being Jewish, Jews love that. Just give me a list of rules, man. <laughs> tell, me, tell me what I should and shouldn't do. And the Lord says, nah, just follow me. <laughs> it's pretty simple. You know, but that was the shepherding movement. You know, people just wanted to be told what to do. He goes on talking about these leaders. He says, you know, wh why we should obey them and, and, and submit to these leaders. Because God has put them in place of responsibility and accountability over us. This does not relieve individual responsibility. But it does put additional accountability and responsibility on leaders. Something I always took to heart. You know, the, the half-brother of Jesus, James, he said, Let not many of us be teachers, for we shall concur the greater condemnation. You know, there is a judgment that is an accountability that is greater on those who are in the position of leadership than those who are not, and rightly so. That's why when we, those of us who are in leadership, take a plunge, we often hurt too many people. You know, and, and it's unfortunate, but it happens. But we are to be held to a stricter accountability. He says they will give an account. This is why. But he says, why? He, say, he says, we should do this and that they might be able to do it with joy. That they might be able to do it with joy, not grief. One of the most disheartening things I've ever seen is a defeated pastor. And I, I know one. I, and he's not so much now because he finally, he finally walked out after 15 years of ministry. I started... I really wanted to help this guy, and I, and I, do, I do like him a lot, and, 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 I, and I'm still friends with him. And, but I remember I actually attended her when I first moved to this area. We were looking for a place to fellowship, and, and the Lord kind of put us together, and, and we kind of had a Calvary background. He used to listen to me on radio, so we kind of had some camaraderie. And, and, and I liked him right off the bat. I mean, I wanted to help him, and, and you know, it was a denomination, uh, uh, not like this one, but it was, and... and we sat there and, and, and listened to him, and he was a good guy. I actually, me and my wife went and did a revival with him, and we just wanted to help him. But the more I got to go over there, because I, I would go up and go sit with him in the morning and drink coffee, and we'd talk about the Lord, and he began to share with me, you know, all the problems that was going on and all the requirements that these people had put on him and the restrictions, and I began to go, wow, Really? Because, you know, from my background, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't, I can't even relate to that. 
And the poor guy was just defeated, defeated. Was not allowed to lead. He was not allowed to really do what the Holy Spirit had called him to do because he had a board who knew better than he did. I just think that's backward, gang. I don't see it in scripture. Now, can you do that way? Well, sure you can. You can do whatever you want to do, but is it profitable, as though he says? Is it profitable? If we have pastors that are trying to lead who are being beaten into submission by the church, it's not profitable for us. These men have to be able to do it with joy and not grief. They have to be able to do that. Now, once again, I'm talking about men who are picked by God. We should never make the mistake of thinking that just because somebody has a degree after their name, that that makes them a pastor. Unfortunately, there's too many seminaries today who we funnel them through there and they get a little degree at the end of the thing, to be honest with you, which wouldn't even get them a job in the real world. And yet we freely give them one in the church. And half the time they don't know enough doctrine to teach anybody. They're unprepared. Not always, but a great deal of them. And so they wind up in the ministry and they wind up defeated and they wind up hurt. It's not good. You know, we have to be careful. We've got to make sure that these men, you know, 1 Timothy chapter 3, it's very clear on what those things are to look like. But we need to be able to, to set up an environment for pastors that they might be able to do it with joy. One of the things that I loved the most was pastoring a group of people that simply trusted that I was being led by the Holy Spirit. I, I, I did appreciate that. You know, I'm not saying that, you know, that, that there shouldn't be checks and balances. Absolutely there should be. But you surround yourself, if you're a smart pastor, you surround yourself with godly businessmen and godly men and women. You know, I had women. I had deaconesses in our church. I had a, had a female church administrator. Godly people who, you know, and men and women. And, and, and there's a great need for that. And if you're a smart pastor, you will listen to them. But you have to have the ability to be led by the Holy Spirit and to override what their recommendation is sometimes. Well, that doesn't set well in certain denominations. It doesn't set well with them. Why? Because in many churches, you have people who have been in those churches for years. You know, my great-great-grandfather started this church, by golly, (laughs) and I'm going to have my say. Tell me that doesn't happen. You know what happens. Doesn't happen here. Only in Texas. You know what I'm saying? Only in those churches. It doesn't happen here, but only in church. But you know it happens. And then put yourself in the position of a pastor. Now, I never had this experience. God was much, God used me in a different way. I was never under the constraints. I was, I never took a salary. Ever. Why? I was a businessman. I was fairly wealthy. I'm not anymore. <laughs> to make that clear. <laughs> but I was. And so I didn't need it. And so I always just funneled the money back into the ministry. That's what I've always done. But if you take guys that are on salary, I've always felt sorry because that was this one pastor I'm thinking of. You know, they held that over him. You know, they held that over him. And all of a sudden, he became a hireling. And that's not a good thing because now, now his, was he genuinely loving the people or was he simply doing what they wanted because his income depended on it? Do you understand what I'm saying? Man, I I felt bad for him because I couldn't relate to it. I was going, man, brother, 15 years he did that. And finally, for his own sanity, 
he walked away from it and started his own ministry. And I told him, I said, do it, brother. Your sanity, your, your ability to serve Christ with a joyful heart is much more important than a job. The problem is, is in seminaries today, they teach it like a job, like it's a career. No, man, this is a calling. It's a calling. And it's an anointing. And if you have it, you'll, you'll be joyful in it. But boy, when, when it, you know, it's just, I'm just saying it, it can be a challenge. So they want to be, we want them to be able to do it with joy. Verse 18, let's close this thing out. Paul the Apostle says, pray for us. For we trust that we have a good conscience in all things willing to live honestly. But I beseech you the rather to do this, that I may be restored to you the sooner. The Greek word here to pray is in the present imperative verb tense. And it, it looks for a continuous activity and implies that they had already been doing that for him, that they had already been praying for him. Any Christian leader, any Bible teacher, any pastor would be a fool not to covet the prayers of those that he teaches. I mean, if you've been sitting here listening to me for any amount of time, either here or on radio, you've heard me say, pray for me. And I mean that sincerely. If you have a prayer list, put me on the top. I need and covet your prayers. It's because when we have people praying, things happen. Once again, James says, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Where there's great opportunity, you better believe there's always going to be great opposition. We've experienced a little bit in, in, in something beautiful ministry, but really nothing major. Why? Because somebody's praying for me. You guys are praying for me. And I appreciate that. I just want to be able to continue to do what we do. What a beautiful thing that we really have seen and, and God is doing. And it's only going to get better, gang. As we get into the book of Acts, I'm sure that one or two things will happen. Either revival or revolt. Because <laughs> it's a powerful, powerful book. We're hoping for revival. You know. But... I know, I know how things work, but pray for me, you know, and, and this is what Paul was talking. Pray for me that I would be restored unto you all the sooner. He knew that there was obstacles. Paul knew there was obstacles for him being restored to them. He wanted to see them, but he also knew that prayer could remove those. You remember Peter was in chains, and when they were praying for him, he was loosed. And even when he showed up at the house, they were still praying. And then the little girl runs out and he goes, it's a ghost. You know? He was, no, man, it was just the power of prayer. God listens to us and he hears you. And so lift me up in prayer and my wife. Keep her in prayer too because, you know, we're a target. Where there's great opportunity, there's, there, there's great opposition. The enemy doesn't like what we're doing because people, not only people, but pastors are changing. They're listening. And they're being encouraged to, you know what? Maybe I'll start taking my congregation through, this, through the scriptures. I'm excited about that. And if God will use it, man, praise the Lord. Because those congregations are going to thrive. Look at verse 20. Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the everlasting covenant. Every time you see the word everlasting, underline it, mark it. Everlasting covenant. Make you perfect in every good work to do his will. Working in you. Underline that. Working in you. We always hear people want to quote the verse, well, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Well, read on, brother. Read on. For it is God that worketh in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. 
It's God that does the work. How dare any of us who claim to be pastors put this weight of doing on the backs of the people without telling them how it's done? Listen, you can do all kinds of things in the name of God. You can intentionally do a lot of things in the name of God. Matthew chapter 7. Jesus said, there will come those in the last day, on that day of judgment, and they will say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do? Didn't we cast out devils in your name? Didn't we prophesy in your name? And in your name do many wonderful works. I'm sure they intentionally did it. But what did he say unto them? Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. God isn't concerned with what you do. He's concerned with why you do it. Listen, if we go out and we feed the poor and we feed the hungry and we do everything that Judas himself was concerned about, what does that make us? Philanthropist. That's all it makes you. You do realize that there's heathens who do the same thing. They're concerned about the poor. They go out and feed the poor. There's all kinds of philanthropy that goes on. What's the difference between them and us? We're motivated by the love of God. But it's not just my motivation for, in my love of God that makes me do it. It is the power of the Holy Spirit working in me that which is pleasing to the Father. Do you understand that? I'm not picking on sayings. You can have your slogans. I don't particularly like that one. If I hear it one more time, it just grates on my nerves. I intentionally go, let me give you what the Bible says. I'm just throwing it out there, gang. You can hang on to it if you want. You can get mad at me if you want. But I just want you to know what the Scripture says. You want to intentionally become like Jesus? Well, the Bible says those he foreknew, he also did predestinate to become conformed into the image of his son. What does that tell me? You are going to be conformed to the image of his son if you simply cling to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why? Because it is the Holy Spirit that's working in you and he's doing the works. Even Jesus said the same thing. He wasn't him. He said, it's the father that doeth the works. It's God working in you both to do and to do his, and to will his good pleasure. It's him. So what are, what are we to do, then, Doug? Submit to the Lord. Submit to the Holy Spirit. Be baptized in the Holy Ghost and allow him to do it. We're going to see this as we get into the book of Acts. Read ahead, gang. We know what the gospel is now. We know all that Jesus has done for us now because of our study in Hebrews. Now we're going to find out what the power is. Listen, there's nothing wrong with wanting to do good things. Do good works. But be them done by the power of the Holy Spirit. Do you realize that if we simply submit to the power of the Holy Spirit and the Lord lays something on your heart to do, I couldn't stop you from doing it. I couldn't stop you. If God has called you, just like the one that comes to mind, of course, is Brian. I won't mention his last name because of the radio. But we know Brian. He's the missionary guy. He's the missionary guy. I knew it when I first came here. When I first came in this door, 
that dude was just, I, instantly I wanted to hug him. I just loved him. I just liked him. And he had this concern, this overwhelming concern. If I was to go to him, even as a pastor, and go, you know what, brother, I'm not sure you should be doing that. He'd go, well, that's fine. I'm doing it anyway. Why? He can't help not do it. Why? He's called to it. He's called to it. He's empowered by the Holy Spirit to do it. I'm sure he has suffered the loss of his own funds to do it. He's called to do it. You couldn't stop him. He'd find another way. He'd find a way. Why? He's called to it. But that's the motivation of his, not only his love for the Lord. It's not because he intentionally means to do it. I'm sure he means to do it. But it's the work of the Holy Spirit in him. He does the works. It's by him and through him. Jesus said, without me, you can do nothing. It's the Holy Spirit that does it. Once we submit to the Holy Spirit, once we embrace that baptism and those fillings that we're going to be talking about as we go into Acts, you're going to see that the supernatural abilities of God are done very naturally. We don't need a program. You really don't. What you need are spirit-filled people. And you will see everything in the body of Christ get done. I've witnessed it myself over years, gang. We had to replace a whole roof on a big commercial building one time. They wanted $80,000 to do that. We didn't have $80,000 in the savings account in the building fund. I took a sledgehammer up on that roof, and they said, what are we going to do? I said, I'm knocking off these air conditioners. They're in the way. <laughs> what do you mean they're in the way? How are we going to put a new roof on if we have air conditioners on here? Let's, uh, hit it with a sledgehammer. It'll come off. So me and my old... Uh, pastor who went up there with me who thought I was out of my mind. I knocked the air conditioners off the top of the roof. Three-story building. There was nobody down there. I made sure. And then I called up my elders and I said, yeah, we got a problem. He goes, what do you mean? I said, we got these big gaping holes in the roof. He said, what do you mean? I said, yeah, some crazy man went up there with a sledgehammer and knocked the air conditioners off. I guess we better put a roof on because it looks like it's going to rain. <laughs> Within a week that roof was on and that roof was paid for. Not once did I ever ask for a dime. I never passed the plate. I never had the building fund. I didn't have to. And to this day, I can't tell you where the money came. All I know is I called up and I ordered the materials. <laughs> and this is a true story. I know it sounds like I'm making it up. I'm not making it up. I just called and ordered the materials. It all got put on. And even... Even the, the code inspectors came up. and the guy, I, remember, I remember the guy saying, I got pictures of it. One of these days I'll bring them and we'll put them up. I'll show you. It was amazing. I had everybody. I had kids, old men, old women wanting to get up on that roof and, 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 do, and, and do the work. I never once asked them. But they were up there. We were up there as a family. We were a family. And that roof got put on. The inspector came up every step of the way. Here's what he told me. He goes, well, it's a good thing you had roofers in this, you know, commercial roofers in this, in this church. I said, commercial roofers? There ain't nobody up here ever put a roof on in their life. He said, well, this is the best looking roof I've ever seen. I said, well, that's God, brother. It's the Lord. Why? That's what happens when people are empowered by the Holy Spirit. It wasn't just me motivating them. It wasn't me guilting them into it. Now, granted, I might have edged it a little bit by knocking the air conditioners off the roof. <laughs> I, might, I might have created the necessity. But why did I do that? I knew God had given us a radio station. We had to build it. And my, I had a couple elders who were going, you know, we better wait till we have. And I'm going, wait for what? 
well, you know, we really don't have the funds. I'm going, if God gave me a radio station, I'm pretty sure he's going to fund it. And I was right. Why? Because I know God. That's what he does. Where God guides, God provides. I wasn't assuming anything. I just assumed that God was going to take care of why he had given it to us. It's too simple. And that's why we always fall back to the here's what we need to do. When really all we need to do is submit to the following and the leading of the Holy Spirit. That's really what we do. Read ahead, gang. When we get into the book of Acts, it's going to be amazing, especially the first chapter. It's going to be amazing. We're going to be talking a lot about that. Here's the power. Jesus said, look, you, you, know, there, you might be baptized with water, but you will be baptized with fire. Not many days from now, you will be endued with power. Endued. In the Greek, it's deutimus. It's where we get the word dynamite. That dynamic, this is where it comes from. Listen, I can't tell you to go do something without telling you by which power you have to do it. You can't do it. Jesus said, in and of yourselves, you can, without me, you can do nothing. But with the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ, all things are possible. Let's pray. Father, we love you, and we just thank you for your word and all that you, all you've done for us, Lord Father. I pray that you would just bless your word, Lord Father, that people would be drawn closer to Jesus Christ and to walk in the Spirit, Lord that we might embrace all that you've done on our behalf, all that you have imputed to us, Lord Father, by our faith alone. We are so thankful to that. We love you. We just ask, Lord Father, that the Holy Spirit, he would go beforehand. And as we get ready, Lord Father, to jump into this next great book, we pray, Lord Father, that you would guide us, that the Holy Spirit, he would have his way in teaching us all that you would have us to know about what is available to us in the Spirit. We love you, and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.